This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. I believe we need to do five things. First of all, to create momentum for the Great Reset. The Great Reset is a welcome recognition that this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. The Great Reset. The Great Opportunity for Reset. The Great Reset. Great Reset. For the Great Reset we're talking about here. In short, we need a great reset. Welcome to Hope Baptist Church and welcome also to our visitors and it's a wonderful blessing to see you, to see you here and, uh, and it's a real encouragement. Um, we're looking at this, this series, the May Day series and, uh, and we're looking particularly at this particular portion with regards to what we've referred to as the greatest reset and it's a discussion on the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth and comparing that also to the efforts of world government that is before us today. But there's an element of this that I needed to sort of pull back on a little bit on two parts. Number one is there has to be an understanding, a general biblical understanding of world history. Um, No, it's not going to be a history lesson, but it is important and vitally important to be able to understand where we stand today in the context of history especially when it talks about within the scriptures. We're going to be talking also with regards to how we are at what I would refer to as a junction, a very evident, pivotal junction within the world today that seems to be fairly clear to many of us. But also my desire was to give us as Christians an understanding of how our attitudes need to be with respect to this that we would all understand that we are the children of another kingdom, that we belong unto Christ, that He is our Lord, He is our governing body, He is our King. And in that, our hearts need to be knit to Him and not to the world that is before us here. And if we have that firmly implanted within our hearts and minds, we will then be wonderfully encouraged to live our lives in the light of the truth of that. But if our hearts and minds have a consideration where our focus is in this life and in this world, then I'm afraid that we are going to find ourselves um, quite debilitated in many, many ways. If you belong to Christ, having one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom just does not work. You can't be happy, you cannot be satisfied and you certainly cannot have any degree of comfort within your life. If you have both your feet in this world because you're not saved, you don't know Christ, then you're going to find yourself seriously disappointed because the world will not be able to offer you that which it promises you. Promises you. This, is, this is the devil's bargain is what you're giving yourselves over to. But for those of you who have the desire to follow Christ and to be with Him and to live according to the kingdom that God has already established or is established once in one in your hearts and two with Him in heaven and also in the coming millennial reign of Christ, you can actually live your life here with joy. No matter the persecutions, no matter the struggles, no matter the trials, there's an element of this that we need to make a decision personally to click over. Not to be living our lives as if we've lost. No, the world is following a loser. He is the king of all the losers. There are no losers greater than the devil. His attempt at trying to actually create a kingdom for himself would last at its highest peak for three and a half years. 
I mean, seriously. Seriously. Not even, even our governments last longer than that. You know? So, and it's also a fractured kingdom, not a unified kingdom. It's a broken kingdom, one of iron and clay. And we'll talk about that this morning. We'll have a, have a look at that. And how can that compare to the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns on earth for a thousand years and then immediately moves into this eternal state? He lives and rules and reigns for eternity. It doesn't even come close to comparing. And the devil will be cast into that lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. Well, that's obviously future tense still as well. So I want to be looking at something by way of introduction, and that is Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 to 45. I want you to have a look at this portion of Scripture because it's vitally important to be able to understand where we are historically. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 27, so you'll be able to understand. Remember, um, Brother Eric Reese mentioned that the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 9, was the key to prophecy. Well, this very much puts all of that into, into context. There is at this particular time, you remember this story, and many of you would know Daniel chapter 2 very, very well. You've got Nebuchadnezzar the king who had a vision, he had a dream. And this dream troubled him so that his sleep departed from him. And as that sleep departed from him, he desired to have the magicians, the people who were supposed to be in the know, the Chaldeans were supposed to have been in the know, to interpret the dream for him. But he didn't just give them the, the, the interpretation of the dream. He didn't tell them the dream. He told them that they needed to tell him the dream and give the interpretation. That's, uh, that really tests your faith there, right? So he alone knew the dream, although he claimed that the dream had departed from him. They said, no, king, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He said, yeah, look, I'm sure you're going to gain the time, but you see the dream has departed from me. So you're going to give me the interpretation and the dream. And if you don't, then I'm going to kill you, make your houses a dunghill and all your family. That's a deal that was a little uncomfortable for these individuals. But Daniel himself went before the Lord and the Lord revealed to Daniel the dream and the interpretation. Now Daniel comes to the king. And this is where we pick it up, verse 27. And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. But for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, and behold a, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet, part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, but no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, he hath given unto thine, into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. 
And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay." And as the days of these, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we give consideration to these things this morning, I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would enlighten our own hearts and our minds, and that as those things that are being taught, and it may feel as if they are going over our heads, yet I pray, dear God, that you would help us absorb the information, that even at a latter day, dear Lord, we may be able to have an understanding of it, and that we may rejoice and glorify our God who is in heaven. I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me, dear Father, as I bring this message, but especially, dear Lord, as you be with this congregation who hear it and deliver it directly into their hearts, dear Father, that they may have understanding. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you get the image of this? Did you get the picture of this? We've, we've got a We've got a, an image or a, or a monument or a statue or whatever you want to call it and it stands tall. Uh, the head was of gold and it was a representative of the Babylonian Empire, the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar himself was the ruler of. He was the king of kings and his authority was an absolute authority. He had the right to kill and to make alive or to keep alive. He had the ability to be able to do those sort of things. But the next kingdom was inferior to that one. It was the Medo-Persian Empire. It's identified by this chest of silver. Interesting, the two arms, Medo-Persia. Medo, the Median Empire was the first one. The Persian Empire came up later. That was an inferior kingdom. If you can remember as you're reading the scriptures, you'll notice that Darius the king or Cyrus the king could make certain decrees, but once they made those decrees, they couldn't go back on them. They had to make them and keep them and retain them, but they lost the absolute authority to change their minds. And then you had another kingdom inferior to that one, which we recognize in the, in the, in the Bible, especially in the book of Daniel, was the Greek Empire. An empire run and ruled by Alexander the Great. You will remember him. And he is seen in Scripture as the head of the Greek Empire. Don't tell your Macedonian friends that. They'll get upset. We have there uh, an individual who is so clearly represented in the book of Daniel that many of the modern scholars have decided to late date the book of Daniel because the understanding of this individual and his career is so clearly represented in the book of Daniel, which we don't have time to go into today. After that, we know historically and biblically that the following empire was the empire that, according to the book of Daniel here and according to history, has never been beaten has never been overtaken by another empire, and that is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is regarded here in the Scriptures as those legs of iron. And it's interesting that it's, again, the legs of iron. One of the things that we know about the Roman Empire is that it has an eastern and western branch, don't we? We see the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, which took over from the other political empire that was there before. We have the eastern and the western branch of both of those. Today that's represented interestingly by the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. But then we've got this strange feet and toes. They're not iron completely. They're not clay completely. They're a little bit of both. They're iron mixed with clay. They come at the long end of that body which is right at the ankle bones and they are very very distinct yet part of the former empire part of the roman empire what we have happening is a temporary interruption that was witnessed by these empires what we saw here 
are kingdoms, the kingdoms of the Gentiles. And each of these kingdoms were Gentile kingdoms. Each one of these kingdoms were, of these empires were evil empires. Paul speaks about living in evil days and he was speaking about the Roman Empire at the time. Each one of these kingdoms also reflected the God of this world in its character. Reflected the God, the, the devil, who is the God of this world by character. The fourth kingdom, however, has something interesting and that is there's a temporary inter- interruption and it was for a time. And I want to talk about that just for a moment. I, I, I do love history. I love history because I, I think history gives us a tremendous example and an explanation of the world that we're living in today. It shows us how we got here. Some of you might remember, and I've mentioned this before, and forgive me if I keep sounding repetitive, um, you would have remembered the, the, the film series, The Lord of the Rings, and one of those films there is the return of the king or just before the return of the king, I can't remember the previous film. And Theoden the king, he stands there and he'd been in a deep sleep, a deep slumber. He had a spell put over him and he was not himself, yet he was the king of this, of this nation. And when he had awoken, he knew that there was a massive military build-up and an army coming to completely annihilate them. And he stands there in his, in his castle getting getting put on, the, uh, the arm has been put on his torso and on his body and he says one thing and it stuck with me and that is, how did it come to this? And that's the problem for many people today. Many people are finally, they're catching up but they don't see that there has been a long road to get to the point that we're in today. There's been a long historical uh, road that has gotten us to where we are. This didn't just begin in the 21st century. This had begun many, many years before. And that's why history and understanding the answer to that question, I believe, is vitally important because it brings us back to the Lord, brings us back to the book of books, you know. And so what we see here is an interruption to the kingdom. That interruption was by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right up until this particular time in history, the world was fairly destitute. It was very meagre, didn't have a great deal of prosperity thousands of years had led to that time right up to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came and the gospel started getting shared all over the world, we started seeing a transition, a change, a dramatic transformation. And the last 2,000 years had some ups and downs, especially through the Roman Empire or the Roman Catholic Church, which belittled the word of God that stood on the word of God and hid it and trampled it and kept it undercover wrapped in the Latin language and most people didn't understand or speak Latin the 14th century begins and you see men like John Wycliffe coming forward out of the Roman Catholic Church desiring to bring the word of God into the English language that the people of the English language would have an understanding or be able to know and learn what the scripture saith. But something else happened during that particular time as well and that is the English language was starting to change change and transform and build and grow from the 9th century and it started moving itself through the old English language which began roughly around about the 8th century and concluded into Middle English which began in the 14th century, roughly the time of John Wycliffe and then Modern English which began in the 17th century which we have our King James Bible in modern English. It's a book and a volume that you can still understand and read today. You can read Shakespeare today without a problem. That's modern English. But when you're looking at Middle English, trying to read uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, for example, you would struggle. (laughs) Matter of fact, you wouldn't be able to read him. Try reading Canterbury Tales in the original and you'd think it was a different language. You just can't do it. So you'd actually ask yourself a question whether Shakespeare was actually able to even read Canterbury Tales. So... There'd been a development of the language, there'd been a development together with that with regards to the Word of God and then you have men like Tyndale who came and gave the Word of God into the English-speaking language and the book that we have today, 95% of that is still Tyndale's words. He was the one that had many of the phrases that are within the Scriptures. The word Passover was not a word that was known before that, it was invented by Tyndale. So, we see a transition and a change happening through history, but we also see something else. Men's hearts began to warm for the Lord. They began to desire the Lord. And at that time when we had the Word of God so knit, we had revivals. 
the revivals that happened during the 17th, 18th and early 19th century were enormous. People being convicted by the word of God and coming to Christ and believing the gospel. And what did you have happen at that same time? You had a revival. You had a, a, the Renaissance period came in, in Europe. You had an expansion and explosion of science and music and art. And it became beautiful and glorious to watch and behold. You had mathematics developed to a point where none, nobody has ever understood before. And we now today, our scientific community today, stand on the shoulders of giants. You have men like Isaac Newton who is charged to have written over one million words of theology. You have a man who believed in the Lord. He wasn't a perfect man or a perfect Christian. He had his faults, no doubt. Yet our laws, our governing systems, everything was based on a knowledge of of truth there was a genuine truth there was a right and there was a wrong and this is also understood as what's referred to as modernism a period of time in history known as modernism but then we have the inset of the 19th century you have the german rationalist school that began to create doubt in the word of god do we have the word of god do we really have the truth of the scriptures i mean did jesus really say that and then you've got the jesus society who used to cast stones and rocks and different colors to be able to determine which words were actually Jesus's words which words were like Jesus's words which words were similar according to his intention and which words definitely weren't Jesus's words these began to infiltrate the schools and the colleges of the time because what you had was Protestantism beginning and taking over from Roman Catholicism which actually held to their schools and Protestantism held to the idea of having Bible colleges and schools and of course you had the counter-reformation of the Roman Catholic Church sending their own people into those schools and trying to remove what they referred to as the paper pope, the Bible, (laughs) the paper pope. But during this time, men's hearts warmed to Christ. They warmed to the Lord. We see that historically also. We're looking at the book of Revelation. We see the history of the churches. And we recognize that the Philadelphian church was the second last of all the churches. And we could only claim that that period of time would have been known as the Philadelphian church age, where people's hearts, because it spoke about being warmed, being uh, holding to his word. But because of this change, because of this removal of the word of God, we then entered into a period known as postmodernism. And that is a period that you cannot know the truth of anything that truth is relative einstein didn't help a tremendous amount because he also came up with his theory of relativity and it also built on that particular point because it all comes to the perspective from where you're viewing some of these things you know light is now both a particle and a wave two different individuals both of them receiving the nobel prize for the discovery that light is a particle One discovered that it was a wave first and then another discovered that it was a particle, both of them receiving the Nobel Prize. Well, how can that be? Isn't that a contradiction? How can light be both a particle and a wave? Anyway, the point is moving towards this era and this area where you cannot know the truth of anything. So the entire concept of truth was started to put on the back burner and post-modernism began and moved on forward. You have individuals like Søren Kierkegaard who actually started expounding this particular idea and we'll talk about him a little bit more when we get into the foundation study. All of these things are happening at this particular point in time, building a sandy foundation for which the current world is going to be poised upon and sitting on. There was this temporary interruption to the standard world order of things. We're moving from one empire to another and yet this long period of the Roman Empire until we get to uh, a particular point historically and this is a point that we're in today the revived roman empire we're living at the junction of the leg and the foot there's a junction there we refer to it and and what's the word saskia what's the word and anatomic and anyway yeah anatomically i think it's that that might be the word i can't remember but anyway the ankle 
the ankle has this definitive line. It's not a hazy one. There's a definitive line where the leg stops and the ankle starts and that's where the foot begins. We see this in that, in that monument that's been erected here in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. We have the head of gold. We have the, breast, the, the, the chest of silver, the breastplate of brass. Then we have the legs of iron. Now we meet this particular point in history where the iron meets the iron mixed with clay. The League of Nations was established in 1920 by the Paris Peace Conference and it was, quote, the first worldwide intergovernmental organisation whose principal mission was to maintain world peace, according to our favourite encyclopaedia, Wikipedia. It's hardly an encyclopaedia and it's hardly without vested interests. But anyway, we'll, we'll, I like to take that one sometimes because this is in their own words. This is the League of Nations. Notice when it was set up. It was set up in 1920. Notice its purpose. Its was, purpose was intergovernmental and it was there to promote world peace. There were only four nations that were involved in the setup of the League of Nations and they also set up five treaties. Those five treaties took the opportunity of the First World War to be framed and formed and to be able to use as a governing principle of the world. One of those treaties, however... Was a, uh, was a dramatic one for the, the nation of Germany. And it was known as the Treaty of Versailles. Many of you be aware of the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles imposed upon Germany the complete and total blame for the First World War. And they were therefore had to pay reparations to the rest of the world. Reparations that would in themselves completely destroy that, that nation. And because they, were not, they did not have the right to be a part of the process of creating this accord, um, they had held the Western world in complete and utter contempt. During the Weimar Republic, which was established in 1919 and finished roughly 1933, the Weimar Republic, well, they thought, okay, we've got to pay the money, so we'll just print it. So they printed the money to give to them. So they gave them worthless paper to help pay for these reparations. But of course that had an effect upon the inflation rate of the people who were living in Germany at the time. And we get to a particular point. My wife was trying to get in the back door. She couldn't get in the back door. It was locked. Um, I think it must have opened it from the inside. Can you grab that? Thanks, Andy. Um, she's going to come in another way. It doesn't matter. Um, so once you leave, you can't come back. You, you know that. So you, you, you can come in, but you cannot leave. Hang on. Um, this, this Weimar Republic created a, well, it printed money. And the more money you print, it doesn't actually make you wealthier. It makes the people at the top of the chain wealthier because they are the first recipients of the money and when they first receive the money, they can take advantage of the low prices. But by the time that money filters down to those like you and I, the prices had already risen. There is already a lot more competition for those prices. Very, very short introduction to this to understand inflation is not prices going up. Prices going up are the result of inflation. Inflation is the unlimited supply of purchasing power for limited goods. There are limited goods. So if we've only got one iPad, for example, and everybody wants one, then the value or the price of this iPad goes up. But the more money you guys have available to you, the more of this price goes up. Um, you could think of inflation as, well, imagine money or that ability to transact as cordial. You have straight cordial, pretty sweet. Right? But it's straight cordial, it's pure. Inflation and the creation of extra dollars is simply adding water to that cordial. What it does is it dilutes the value of what's already there. And this is what's happening. This is what's happened in Australia. We've printed a trillion dollars. One trillion dollars for a nation of 25, 26 million people is astounding. And so you should be expecting the prices of things to go up. Things like houses and basic goods and all that sort of stuff. Houses might come down soon because interest rates are now going to be going up. Anyway, the point is during the Treaty of Versailles and as a result of that, the Weimar Republic 
printed the money to pay for the reparations that had a direct effect on the actual nation of Germany, where an egg went from the equivalent value of five cents to five billion dollars for one single egg. Now, this is interesting, just as a side note. They change the words billion and trillion. They redefine those words. So in Germany, they referred to the, 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 the billion as a milliard. Milliard. Think of the word. A milliard dollars or a milliard marks. Milli means thousand. Okay? So a milliard was 1,000 million. We then changed that to refer to a billion. But that's not a billion. Traditionally, a billion was never referred to as a thousand million. Traditionally, a billion was what? A million squared. That's a billion. A trillion was never a thousand billion. We've, we've changed those references now. And, but a trillion was always one million cubed. Makes sense, yeah? Makes sense now when you think about it. But they changed those because they, 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 they knew that if, they, if we tried to say... It's actually a thousand, thousand, million, million. You know, we would, we would think that that money's, that's too big. That's too big a number. A trillion's easier to deal with because it sort of sounds a little bit more compact. Sounds compact, doesn't it? Well, imagine living in the time of Isaiah, 700 BC, and I gave you a trillion dollars. And I told you back then that you need to spend a million dollars a day. A million dollars a day from the time of Isaiah, that's a trillion dollars I've given you, you've got to spend a million dollars a day without fail. You get to today, in the 2022 AD, you would still have about $10 billion in your bank account. So it just gives you a little bit of an understanding. That's only $1 trillion. Have you got that? You can do the math later. It works, trust me. All right? I've done the math. This is what happened during the Weimar Republic. This is what happened during that particular time. This is what brought the rise of Adolf Hitler. This is what gave us the Second World War. The Second World War, at the conclusion of that, clearly the League of Nations didn't work anymore, so they had to disband the League of Nations, but they began in 1946 the United Nations. And the United Nations is this. It's an intergovernmental organisation whose purpose is to maintain international peace and security. So that's how it works. That's how everything functions. So just do exactly the same thing that didn't work before, but just call it something else and we'll do it again. But this time, this time there's been a lot more effort involved in the United Nations. This time what you have is a United Nations, which is the beginning of the creation of the revived Roman Empire and they got organised. UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Science and Cultural Organisations, that's set to basically propagandise the United Nations goals throughout the entire world. They come into Australia, they come into our parliaments, they put laws into our governments, parliaments, and if those laws are not rejected within 21 days, they become foundational laws within our government. Some of you might have been boring enough people to have watched parliament sitting, and you would have realised that they had three cameras. One camera on the speaker, one camera on the whole chamber, and another camera and another camera on the individual, the only indiv other individual that's there falling asleep. Now it's no longer there now, there's only one camera, it's on the speaker. It doesn't pan back to show you that there's no one there as the bills are read. So there's no one there to oppose many of these bills. You wonder why Australia and the rest of the world are actually doing and working in sync one with another? You'll have an understanding that's the United Nations laws being instituted within our nations. You have UNESCO, the creation of that. You have the IPCC. Sorry, I wasn't meant to swear in this place. But the IPCC is the intergovernmental body, the intergovernmental, oh, intergovernmental panel on climate change. Um, it is part of the United Nations Environment Program. You have the World Health Organization. It is a specialised agency of the United Nations responsible for international public health. Look at those words, pretty, pretty powerful words. These are all part of the United Nations, but together in sync with that, you also have the financial arms and they are identified by the World Bank, who's there to loan money to poor people who, or to poor countries. You have also the 
the International Monetary Fund, which is established and part of the United States, it also disperses money. You also have the Bank of International Settlements. That's also a global entity. Currently, has a CEO who's part who's in uh, South America. Quite, quite a, quite a large man, actually. You have these individuals or these people that are helping control the money of the world, and you'll often see wonder where the money comes from. <laughs> well, they created out of nothing. They created out of nothing. Another topic, another conversation. I don't have time to go there. You have the European Union, you have the World Economic Forum, which, <coughs> which is an international non-governmental lobby group. That lobby group has some of the most powerful and largest organisations and companies as members. And you also finally have the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome. The Club of Rome is a non-profit informal organisation of intellectuals and business leaders whose goal is a critical discussion of present global issues. The Club of Rome was founded in 1968 uh, in Rome, Italy. It consists of 100 full-time... <coughs> excuse me. 100 full members selected from the current and former heads of state and government, the United Nations administrators, high-level politicians and government officials, diplomats, scientists, econ economists and business leaders from around the globe. It stimulated considerable, considerable public attention in 1972 with the first report to the Club of Rome noted, known as Limits to Grow. Anybody heard of Limits to Grow? You need to get read up on Limits to Grow. It will help understand what the ultimate goal is and that is to have our GDP at zero. They do not want us to prosper. They do not want nations to prosper. They want nations hindered in their ability to prosper and therefore they impose laws and rules upon large businesses and bodies. Okay, I've got to, I've got to share this bit. So in the United States at the moment, you've got a massive reduction in the ability to be able to create diesel fuel. And that ability to be able to create diesel fuel is not a limitation of fuel. It's a limitation due to refineries closing down because of the new laws that are imposed upon them. Those new laws are actually affecting them to be able to do the work. It's going to cost them too much money to maintain those rules and those laws, so they, it, they just close down. So you've got a limitation of the supply of, of, of fuel, of diesel in those nations. They're doing exactly the same thing. We just passed a law or passing a law here in Victoria with regards to farmers. Those same rules and laws are being imposed on farmers, making it near impossible for many of these farmers to be able to keep their businesses open. This control of the food supply is part of that agenda. So these things are all happening and it's all part of limits to growth. That's all part of limits to growth. The document is available. You can actually read it for free online. Okay? All of these things are available freely online. Short point, this one. The world is at the inflection point. Quote, Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Nothing will ever return to the broken sense of normalcy that prevailed prior to the crisis, referring to COVID-19, because the coronavirus pandemic marks a fundamental inflection point in our global trajectory. trajectory. That is, Klaus Schwab, in his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, page 12. You can look at that yourself. Ernest Hemingway, in his novel, The Sun Also Rises, speaks about how people can go broke, um, how things happen, first very, very slowly and then all of a sudden. And it refers to two individuals who were speaking. And one asked the question, how did you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said, gradually and then all at once. And that's exactly how things come to pass. Speaking of the work of communism, it was Vladimir Lenin who wrote, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. And this is something that we also see written within the truth of Scripture. We speak about, speaks about the last days as like a woman in travail, a travail to give birth, a travail for that. You have a, ling a long gestation period, but then when the time comes for the birth to come, then there is this dramatic seizures that actually occur upon a woman. And at first, 
It begins gradually and then all at once. And this is how the Bible refers to the last days as being upon that way. I want you to have an understanding of the world that we're living in today, but I don't want it to be negative and I'll, and I'll make sure that it's not negative for you at the end. Klaus Schwab writes again in page 29 of the same book, he says, the same tends to happen for big system shifts and disruption in general things. In general, things tend to change gradually at first and then all at once. Expect the same for the macro reset. Right? Speaking of the overall global reset. One of the things that we see happening within the world today is exactly that. We have a transformation and a change that's happening within the world and it's happening very suddenly, very quickly and it's taken a lot of people by surprise. They shouldn't have been surprised. When it came to the rejection of truth, pastors shouldn't have been surprised because it was the very pastors that stood behind their pulpits and said, another word is, or a better word is, or a more perfect translation is, or this word shouldn't belong here, it should be this. When the very ministers of the gospel of truth rejecting the word of God, what do you think the world is going to think out there? I hate it. It disgusts me. It makes me personally sick because I don't understand what the point is of us even standing here behind a pulpit if we don't have the words of truth in our hands. And that's why I am. I am a fundamentalist when it comes to this. If you don't have the very word of God, you have nothing. I sat in a Bible class at one particular time and there was an argument with regards to the passage in Judges chapter 11 about the, about the father who said to the Lord, that was known as the rash vow of Japheth. You'll read it in your, own, in your own texts. And he says to the Lord, he says to the Lord, whatever comes to greet me out of my house, I will offer as a burnt offering unto the Lord. And it was his one and only daughter that came out to greet him. And this is a distasteful, horrible horrible consideration and i have absolutely absolute disdain on this consideration but what made it worse was when the the pastor of the bible college or the preacher the teacher told changed two words changed the word lament to rejoice i don't know if you can do that but apparently you can do that you can change the word to make it mean it's opposite and he also changed the pronoun and I can't remember what that word was. And I looked at it in total disgust and I grabbed my Bible and I threw it across the desk. And I said to him, if you could do that to this book, then that book is just worth the bin. It's absolute garbage. It's not worth, worth having. But beloved, when you've rejected the Word of God, when you, you, you rejected it in part, you've rejected it in its entirety. And now we have a world that no longer, all of a sudden, all of that has caught up caught up it's gotten to that inflection point now where now you've got organizations like the who who's putting forward their their pandemic treaty which australia is going to be signing on monday and as we sign that pandemic treaty we're giving over our sovereignty we're we're giving over the sovereignty of this nation to the world health organization to determine what goes on within our own country oh yeah we're going to have a representative that's nice a representative's going to be there for us um but if the representative of the Labor Party is the head of the Labor Party at the moment, and that's a picture of what we're going to have representing us at the world, I, I, don't, I don't like it. <laughs> so this is some of the things that we have happening. We have this, and Christine Anderson, many of you who, who would know, she refers to this as the, abom- the, the abolition of democracy through the, the, the Hooves pandemic treaty. We have CDCs coming, CBDCs coming out, digital currencies. Uh, speaking about global warming, the global financial crisis, the global pandemic, global, 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 everything global. And all this being global requires a global solution. The only way you can have a global solution is a global government. Iron and clay. Let me close with this and let me please encourage you. I have to bring you to this particular point of reality through history to get you to a time of understanding the world that we're living in at the moment. But for us, it is the most exciting time in history to be alive. And I wish you would share in my own excitement. And I I just want to bring these things. We mentioned our brother shared the scripture for us. And this is in Matthew 11. We're going to be looking at some scripture. So please, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to some of these. Matthew 11. 
Sorry, Matthew 13. Did I say 11? 13, please. 13. Where we were before? Was that where we were before? I can turn it myself because I'm going to be made a fool. We were in 6. No, I want to have a look at 13. Yeah, 13. Turn to Matthew 13. Jesus here is speaking about the kingdom of heaven and what it is like. He's speaking about a distinction to the kingdoms of the earth. And in Matthew chapter 13, and we'll take it from verse 34. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables and without a parable spake he not unto them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. We are children of another kingdom. We are not part of this world system. Though for a time we are to subject ourselves under its authority. This is true. But we are children of another kingdom. We are children of the Most High. We are children of the one who has the rule over this world, who overcomes the trials, who turns the hearts of kings just as the rivers are turned in the, in the mountains. This is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is the work that He does. And our appeal is to Him, not to our sovereigns of the nation, but the sovereign of the King of the kingdom that we are a part of. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes and says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. In Revelation 1, 5 to 6, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 5 verse 10 in Revelation says, and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. There's a reason. There's a reason Peter speaks about us being able to give a hope to the world. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a portion that I, that I, I, I truly wish you would memorise, that you would know, that you would understand, that you would hold to, that you would believe. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. When we're looking at this as far as where it's written within the Bible, we see that it's written towards the end of the Bible. It's really interesting as it's written towards the end of the Bible, it's also written in a dispensational period of time towards the end of the history of the world in the latter days. It's identified and noted that it's written to the Jews. We know because the tribulation is predominantly an area, an area of time that's dedicated to the Jews themselves. And Peter here is writing to them. We know that from the first chapter in verse 1. Yet here he says in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and, in, and fear. And I have spoken about this again and again and again. This is something that the world is going to be asking you because they see in you an evident hope that they themselves don't share there's something distinct about you than what they're seeing everywhere else in the world 
It presumes an understanding that the rest of the world has no hope. And yet there is hope in you. How are they seeing that hope reflected by you? Not if your chins are dragging on the ground as theirs are. Because you're the children of another kingdom, beloved. You are the children of the one who sits on high. He sits upon the circle of the earth. This is our Lord. This is our God. This earth is his footstool. Nothing more. This is who we follow and this is who we trust in. It was King David who wrote and said, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Here David in Psalm 37 verses 23 to 27 is showing how God holds his people in a peculiar distinction from the people of the world. It's not something new. Why should we think of it as new? Didn't he do this during the time of the Exodus? Wasn't, wasn't there darkness over all the land of Egypt, but there was light in Goshen? Wasn't it? Weren't all the animals of the field in the palaces of Egypt destroyed by the hail that came? And yet those in Goshen were protected and they were fine. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He knows how to deliver those who are us. And I truly believe with all my heart that we are living in a time that is going to demonstrate the wonderful miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ more than we have ever seen before in our lives. To the point that there may be famine in the land and yet there will be manna falling over your own house in your backyard. I am not averse from thinking that that can be true. Because if this is true, if God will not forsake those and nor his seed ever begging bread, then we can trust in the Lord. Our trust isn't here, beloved. Our trust is in him and in him alone. And it's that way and that way alone that we can actually have the hope that he speaks about, that we can share with others. Others are going to be looking at us and asking us for the hope that we have. Do you have that hope? Now, this, is a, this is a huge question. Do you have that hope? Are you trusting in him or are you trusting in this world, in this wicked world turning into your favour? What can we do? What can we do in the meantime? Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4 and we'll close on this. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, most of you would know, was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Fascinating consideration, just that. Daniel chapter 4 is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting because the Bible says that the scriptures are given holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And yet here we have Daniel chapter 4 written by King Nebuchadnezzar, who glorifies God in the beginning of the chapter. But he tells about another vision. It's interesting with this one. Because with this one, he doesn't actually ask them to reveal the vision to him and give the interpretation. He actually gives them the entire vision and asking for the interpretation. And the wise men were wise at that particular time. They wised up, recognizing they didn't know the interpretation. But Daniel, Daniel comes to the fore and he gives the interpretation of something that's going to happen to the king. And that's a tremendous thing that happens to the king. Matter of fact, if any of you have ever read the the epic volume called the the epic of Gilgamesh if you've ever looked at that that's a secular version of what's happened here speaks about an individual who this seems to have occurred with it's the only other volume in history that that's referred to and I always wonder whether or not these pagan uh, references are referencing to something that's in the bible I love it it's really curious verse 24 this is the interpretation O king And this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. 
And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Oh, the choice of words absolutely blows my mind here. If it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Not, not, notice, not if it may be a change of thy future circumstance. No, a lengthening of thy tranquility. What's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar will happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And it indeed did 12 months later. Okay? But Daniel spoke about breaking off your sins and turning to righteousness that it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. What I see here is also a charge for us. For us. We have a desire that we may have a lengthening of our tranquility. But I wonder what responsibility we have that this world has entered into the doldrums that it's in at the moment. Do you have a responsibility? Do you have a personal responsibility? Do you still live life your own way according to your own terms as if there is no God that rules over you? As if there is no Father that you are to submit to? Do you still live your life that way? Or are you also somewhat responsible for the mess that the world's in today? There was a radio program many, many years ago that put forward a question to its audience and it said, what is wrong with the world? And there was a winning answer that actually came forward and it was written by a man who we know as G.K. Chesterton. And he answers the question to what is wrong with the world and it's simply a two-word answer. I am. I am. Are you willing to take responsibility? Are you willing to take responsibility for the part that you play, whatever small, whatever great? Are you willing to break off your own sins? Are you willing to submit them and admit them to the Lord and repent and turn and believe the gospel, believe the word of God, live according to the life that he's commanded us to live here within the scriptures. Hold to him with everything as if there is nothing else to hold on to, just him and him alone, that it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility, lengthening of this world's tranquility. We live in tranquility. We have peace that passes all understanding, but the world doesn't. We sit here and we pray and we ask for the Lord to come. And we, like John, sit there and he says, I come quickly. And John says, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. We feel that way. But do we feel that way because things are bad in our lives? Or do we feel that way because we're looking forward to the groom coming to claim his bride? I challenge you with that question. Because if you feel that way because you're sick of this life, then how are you different from everybody else? I'm looking forward to the groom. I, I wait with bated breath for my Lord to come. I wait for him. I desire him more than anything because of my love for him. I've been separated from this world for long enough and I just want my Lord to come. And yet at the same time, I pray for the tranquility of the world that I may have another opportunity to share the hope of Christ to just one more person. Just one more. Just one more person. My hope is set, is yours. This is a joy. This is a blessed time to be alive, beloved. And you've been chosen to be here for such a time as this. <laughs> Don't disregard it. Don't disregard it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord. We thank you for the word of the living God. Thank you, dear Lord, for your work within our own hearts, within our own lives. And I pray that if it's just one thing within this message that may have had an impact on my brethren here. I pray, dear Lord, that it impacts them eternally. And I pray, dear Father, that as they search the Scriptures to see whether these things be true, I pray, dear Father, that they would glorify the God in heaven who has given to us, dear Lord, His simple word. I thank you, dear Father, and I pray, dear Lord, that we may have an impact on those that are around us that they may see within us a hope of glory and a hope of joy and a peace that passes all understanding and require of us, dear Lord, an answer to their most perplexing problem. What of this life? 
We praise you, Father, for this time and ask you, dear Lord, go before us and strengthen us for the work ahead and bless us with a greater faith in the knowledge of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.